of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And as you uh, should be well aware of by now, we have been going through uh, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter by chapter uh, because it deals with really the key book in the Bible on teaching us how to minister to other people. That's really what our church is all about. Um, I want to make, a, as you're turning there, I want to make a correction in my announcement. I, uh, Jerry told me that the, the Justin's um, grandmother, it won't be a funeral, it'll be a memorial service at their home. It'll be a private deal, so I want you to put that on your list and pray for them. But we've been, we've been talking about uh, uh, every, every different aspect. And last week we examined, uh, really, uh, in chapter 10, the theme of the chapter understanding the patterns of life uh, that people develop uh, in their lives through, uh, through their life through a period of time. You know, I deal with a lot of people, <clears throat> and chapter 10 deals with how to make good decisions. And I deal with a lot of people uh, all the time who have problems in their life, many on different levels. And I, I know that th there's no way that in one setting I can, I can uh, really solve somebody's problems. I do know that the Bible has the answers to whatever problems we have, but it would be kind of ridiculous to think that uh, you could spend five or six, seven, eight years, you know, making some bad choices in life and getting some things in life that it got you into some situations and then think that we could sit down for an hour uh, and we could solve all of your problems. That's, that's just not realistic. But uh, I have found that, uh, that there's two things that you can do. And uh, I see it all the time when I work with people, and they sit down and we begin to talk about things where they're at in their life. Uh, I found that there's two things, no matter where you're at, where your life is at, what you're struggling with, on whatever level, there's two things that you can do. And the first thing you can do is get a plan to get out of the problems you're in. And a lot of times on, on, uh, when people come over and talk to me, that's what we do. You got to see their faces sometime. They come in so struggled and burdened with what they've got, but when we talk about it and I actually show them and tell them, I can't solve all of your problems today, but this is the path by which if you take it, you can get out of your problems in time and, and actually put together a plan for them, work with them one-on-one, -on -one, putting many of you in their life. The, the look on their face when they leave is totally different than the one they had when they came. The second thing that everybody in this room can do, and this is what chapter 10 is all about, the second thing that we all can do, no matter what your problems are, no matter what level they are, there's one thing that everybody can do right now. We may not be able to fix it down the line. We may not be able to, uh, uh, that'll have to take care of other things. That's not saying that all your problems will go away, but I'll tell you one thing we can all do right now today, if you're willing to, and that is simply, stop making bad choices. You can do that today. You may not be able to eradicate the bad ones that you've made, but in time you can deal with those. But the thing that you want to stop is making bad choices. Bad choices are continually making bad choices is, is always going to be continuous in your life as problems. And simply chapter 10 talks about the aspect of the mind of the minister. And we've talked about how not to make bad choices, how to change things, understanding people. And this is something that fundamentally, if you're going to work with people, you have to do. You have to be able to understand why people uh, say the things that they say, saved and lost, why they do the things that they do, and how they look at things the way they do and why they do. And that's really the key. Last week, we saw two different 
aspects to our mind. We saw the word imagination in chapter 10, verse 5, and we saw the concept of casting down every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. Two things. You know, that word imagination is a great word when you break it down in the Bible. You know how it's used in the Bible in the Old Testament? You find the word abomination. You find the word imagination. Those two words have the word nation in them. And they're two great words because they originate with the nation of Israel. As we saw last week, the basic fundamental problem they had was their imagination. And the fundamental problem that we have is our imagination. But it's used in the Old Testament as imagination. In other words, Israel was thinking like all the other nations. They were imagining themselves to be like the other nations. So God gives us the word imagination. They were committing all of the sins, the abominable things that, that God didn't want them to do, that all the other nations were doing. So God gave us the word abomination. In other words, Israel's two problems. Israel's two problems was the fact that they were thinking like the other nations. And the second problem that they had is they were being like the other nations. And they got in problems in their imagination and the way they thought about things and the way they did things simply because of bad associations. God told them, you're not to be like the other nations. You're to be separate. But no, no, no. They wanted to be like the other nations. And they developed their imagination. They developed their abominations. And in time, it caused them a problem. And for you and for me, it's the exact same thing. You see, for Israel in the Old Testament, the other nations uh, were the nations that God told them to stay away from. For you and for me in the New Testament, in a spiritual sense, it's the world in general. And when we think like the world and we do the things of the world, then that's exactly what got Israel in trouble, and that will get us in trouble. Then the second thing, it says, casting down every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. We talked about that exalting something in your life, exalting somebody else in your life more than Christ. Then we saw the great principle of bringing every thought into captivity under the obedience of Christ. And we talked about how to do that. We talked about through the imagination, when you allow yourself to think like the world, when you allow yourself to be like the world, we bring a stronghold into our life. And he talked about in that passage, and we talked about it last week, pulling down those strongholds in your life, using all the tools that God has made available for you, your Bible, your church, your pastor, uh, yourself to be able to quit making bad decisions. And I gave you, if you remember, some great passages to study. Some great principle verses. Jeremiah chapter 1, the job of a pastor. We saw all of that. Ezekiel chapter 8, how God gives somebody a lying spirit when they want to do uh, their own thing. Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God that we're to put around us. And 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13, where it talks about gird up the loins of your mind. All dealing with the greatest battle that the human race and inhabitants of planet Earth will ever fight. And it's the battle that you and I fight every day of our life. It's the battle of the mind of what we think. That's really where the battle is. Now today, we're going to pick it up in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to read it, and uh, we're going to bring it down to the end of the chapter, and then we'll go back and we'll see how far that we'll get today. But let's pick in reading in verse 6. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trust to himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that he as Christ is, 
Christ, even so are we Christ. For though I should uh, boast somewhat uh, more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed, that I might not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech contemptible. Uh, let such uh, a one think this, that such as we are in word by letters, uh, when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. Uh, for we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves by their measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure. Uh, according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure as though we reach not unto you. For as we come as far as you also in preaching the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things without our measure, that is of a men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased and he shall be enlarged by you according to the rule abundantly to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to coast uh, in another man, a boast in another man's line or things made ready to our hand. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For, none, uh, for, not, he that, uh, for not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord uh, commendeth. Now, Father, help us today to uh, weed through this great passage and to look at the great principles that you have for us. And Lord, help us today to glean out of here what will help us in making good decisions in life, what will help us to stop uh, the process of making bad choices, which just lead to compounding effects in our life that brings all kinds of disarray and problems in our heart. Help us today, Father. Thank you for those that are here, and may the blessings of God through the Word of God go out and use me today to be able to lay the book out and give these people what they need. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it, amen. Now, there's a, in this passage, there's a number of good principles here, and uh, the first one I want to look at is verse 6, and I think this is very unique. <clears throat> he says this, And having <clears throat> in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, that's a great verse. Christians are, uh, fu fundamentally are short on forgiveness and great on revenge. And uh, most of the time, it's in our mind what we think about. Somebody does something to us, we think about how to get even. And somebody will hurt us in some way, and sometimes people will actually do it. And sometimes they won't, but they'll think about doing it. And, uh, you know, when you, it's mostly in our mind, and what we think about, you know, that get-even mindset that we get. And right there, when you see somebody that has that, you know that that's not God's mind. That's not the way God operates. I've often thought, by looking at God's people, if God dealt with us the way we deal with each other, we'd all be in trouble. The day God ever develops the I'm going to get you attitude and get even with you, <laughs> we're, all, we're all in a world of hurt. But he doesn't do that, you see. Uh, in the Star Trek movie, Wrath of Khan, I love the Star Trek movies. And, uh, you know, the Wrath of Khan was always one of my favorites. And uh, in that particular movie, uh, Khan uh, says one of the greatest lines. He says, and you know the story. He got marooned on a planet someplace, and they all think he's dead, and 100 years later, he's still alive. He's a super neutral guy, you know. And so they find him, and he takes them captive, and he's upset now, obviously, because he blames Captain Kirk uh, for, for, for what they did. And uh, so he says this line. He says, and it's, and it, he said, it's great. He says, revenge is a dish best served cold. That's a great line. When he said that, I knew he had to be a Christian. 
Because that's the way Christians think. Christians take revenge on everything and everybody. And, uh, you know, and it, I got to tell you this. Revenge can be a good thing in life. You know, we think about the word anger, and we always hear negative about anger. We hear the word wrath, and we always hear the negative side of that. You know, when we hear the word, uh, you know, to hate something, uh, and we always hear the negative side of that. But you understand that those are God-given emotions that God gave you? They're like any other thing in your life. They can be used for good, or they can be for bad. Now, you take the word hate. Every Christian ought to hate. Every Christian ought to hate. And you know what you ought to hate? You ought to hate everything in your life that goes against what the Word of God tells you. Yes. You ought to hate. God hates. The Bible says God hates with a perfect hatred. You ought to study it and find out what that is. Now, you take the word anger. Now, anger can be a good thing. Anger is an, is an emotion that God gave us. Uh, uh, one time Jesus said uh, when, he, when he saw the, the nation of Israel and he, he saw all that they did, the Bible says he was angered at them. You see, you can have anger in your heart if it's righteous indignation, if it's anger based on something that violates something with God. Now, anger out of control, anger to the point of abuse, anger to the point where it gets completely out of control, then that's wrong. Old Bob Jones Sr. said one time, and it's a true statement, he said every bad thing in this world is a good thing uh, uh, twisted the wrong way. And boy, that is so true. You take the word wrath. And somebody says, oh, I'm going to suffer mom and dad's wrath. Well, maybe you should. <clears throat> but anyway, wrath is the concept of at the second coming of Christ. God's wrath comes on this earth. That's a good thing. Now, you take the word revenge. And 99% of the preachers that get up there and talk about revenge, they say it's a bad thing. Well, revenge can be a bad thing, <clears throat> but in the context, it's a good thing. You see, in the context, he's talking about not you and me as Christians taking revenge on somebody else but taking revenge on yourself when you don't do what's right. Think about that. Think about that. Now, Paul said up here in verse 7, he says, Do you look on the things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, let him think this again. And that's what I want you to do today. If you're a Christian, I want you to rethink where you're at today. I want you to rethink where you're at today. And I think it'll help you. Because the Bible says that you and I ought to be revengeful when it comes to uh, ourselves. Now, let's look at this thing. Look at verse 6. And having in a readiness to revenge. Now, I want you to see that word there. And having in a readiness. You see, it isn't having a readiness. You've got to watch every word in the Bible. Having in a readiness. The fact is, you're in something that makes you and put you in the proper mindset to take revenge on your own flesh. And what you're in is the Word of God. As a Christian, we had to get absolutely infuriated with ourselves when we break fellowship with God. I mean, if you're really a red-blooded, true, born-again Christian, and you have a relationship with God, I know what it does for me. I'm far from perfect. But I will tell you this. There's sometimes I get so angry at myself. There's sometimes I get so infuriated with myself that yet one more time the devil got an advantage over me. Yet one more time I did not follow through what I preached to you all the time and I was not smarter than the problem. One, what do you mean amen? <laughs> you better be applying them to yourself. Don't be applying them to me. You don't know what my problems are. I'll tell you what my problem is. It's you. <laughs> it infuriates me. I get so angry at myself. If you really love God and you really understand what God did for you, hey, when you let him down, it should devastate you. 
I mean, I'm not Roman Catholic, nor do I pretend to be Roman Catholic, but there's one thing that Roman Catholics do or did do or used to do that I think every Baptist ought to apply at some point in your life, especially in this case, and that is whip yourself. <laughs> I mean, they'd come to the place where they would make pens with God. Martin Luther used to whip himself on his back till he bled. Now, I'm not suggesting that, but how can an unsaved man at that point whip himself to do penance with God because he knows he's a sinner, and you and I who are saved just live our life and do what we want to do and never think twice about it? Amen. Revenge. You ought to be revengeful. You have a readiness to be revengeful. And that should get any red-blooded, born-again, saved person on the warpath against himself. Tell yourself how stupid you are to fall for that one more time. Tell yourself how gullible we are to have to one more, yet one more time, the devil got us. To tell yourself how worthless we are to God. And wonder why God even puts up with us the way that he does and just doesn't come down and wipe us off the map. Hate what you do when it goes against him. You know, I, I like to watch people. All my life I've seen this. And I know sports brings everything out of people. But I've, I've watched in volleyball, I've watched in basketball, I've watched in softball, where some of the guys, the girls don't do it too much because the girls don't really have a lot of ego involved in sports. The guys do. The guys want to show how macho they are. I pitch in softball. I shouldn't give him my secrets away. And I'm, that's all I knew. I can't do anything else. If I was on the outfield, that ball would go right by me, and I wouldn't even be able to see it. But on the mound, I, and I got a secret why I do it, but I'm not telling him a secret. I can own that plate. If I have a good day, I'll drop that ball on a, any corner I want. <laughs> and I'll strike out a lot of big guys that are good ball players. You know why I do? I don't, pre I don't preach. What are you laughing at? <laughs> You're wrinkling the pages of your Bible. Yeah. Well, you know what? I did strike you out last year, if I do remember. You know why I'm good at it? Because I don't preach to their ability. I learned a long time ago, preach to their, a, a, a pitch to their ego. You get a guy that comes up to the plate that wants to show the world that he's the best ball hitter in the world, he'll swing at anything you throw him. And when he misses the first one, then you got him. Because now he's double darn going to prove how good he is. So you pitch to his ego again. You give him a ball that he can't hit. But he doesn't care because it's not his athletic ability that's taken over. It's his ego. And you strike him out. You know what happens when you do that? He throws his bat down. He kicks dirt. He walks back. He throws his glove down. He slams the gate. Somebody comes over, his wife tiptoes over to give him water. He throws the water down. He goes home that night and kicks the dog. He goes home that night and beats the kids. They did nothing. He beats the kids. He gets absolutely infuriated because he couldn't hit a little white stupid ball over the fence. But yet, the devil will get a hold of him. He'll sin against God, and he has no problem with that. I've seen it, in, I've seen it on our own league on volleyball. I've seen people see him get mad, and he, and he gets stuffed. And, you know, they'll take that ball, and they'll just smack it down. At the end of the game, when they get beat, they won't go over and shake the other people's hands on the other team. You see it all the time. They're mad. They don't show up to eat afterwards. They go do their own thing. They go do that. They're mad. They're upset. Why? Because 
you lost a volleyball game. <laughs> My God, there's worse things in life than that. If that's what throws you off the bat, I hope nothing ever major happens in your life. Amen. And yet they can sin against God and do whatever they want to do and, and never even bother them. Never even bother them. You know, I'm always suspect of people. I'm always suspect of people who call themselves Christians but enjoy a life of sin and it never really impacts them. That the fact that Christ did all that he did for them, he gave all that he gave for him, and then you and I can just do what we want to do, it ought to devastate us. It ought to bring us to our knees. It ought to bring you to the point where you just, you, you get on a floor and you beat the floor and you cry out to God, why do you put up with me? But no, 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 no. We'll never take revenge on ourselves, but we'll always take revenge on other people. Uh, you know, you hate what you do when it goes against what God is and what he did for you. The fact that God who gave everything he had for you and for me. And then when we sin, we go against that. It's like what? Eating a hamburger? Nothing? You know, fundamentally, I tell you this all the time, and, and I tell you this when you want to work with people. A lot of people get into a lot of problems in their life, alcoholism, drug abuse, all kinds of stuff. And I tell people all the time, and you, you see people even come to our own church who struggle with it. And they, they come for a while, and then they don't come anymore. And uh, it, it takes them over again. I mean, uh, if for some of you, we need to have a revolving door back there because you're in and out so much. But I'll tell you fundamentally what the problem is with whatever stronghold you have in your life. I'm going to tell you what it is. And I'm going to tell you why you can't ever get over it. You'll never get over what's in your life till you hate it as much as God hates it and see it for what it is and then forsake it for what it is. That's taking revenge, man. That's taking revenge. Now, look at verse 7, and here's another great principle. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trust to himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that he is as Christ, even so are we Christ. He's saying, do you look on things after the outward appearance? He says, if you do, and you're saved, you're Christ. He says, let him of himself think this again. I want you to think some things again through this morning. If you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to listen to what I got to say. I'm talking about making good choices, stopping making bad choices. I'm going to show you fundamentally how to do that. But you've got to rethink some things today. You do. We talked about it all last couple of weeks, changing the mindset of where you're at. And it's just that simple. You know, a great principle in the Bible, and it's certainly a great principle in life. And uh, you never judge anything on the basis of how it appears. Your mom and dad used to tell you this, I'm sure. If it looks too good to be true, it probably what? Yeah. yeah. You know why? Because you never judge things by the appearance. I learned that the hard way in the ministry and in life. I really did. I think every pastor does. Every Christian does. I think a lot of times the best way to learn things is to get burnt. You know how I kept realizing as a kid when I was five, six, seven years old not to touch the hot grill in the oven? How? I got burned. And when you learn you get burned, you remember that. You remember that. And dealing with people when you get burned, you remember that. And it, after a while, you learn the great process that you never judge anything. Paul's absolutely right. He's trying to tell them here. 
Now, the greatest definitive story on that in the Bible, the greatest story on this in the Bible, of not a judging the appearance, goes back to the book of 1 Samuel. In fact, it's really the whole book, but the story really kind of unfolds itself in the first 16, 17 chapters. And obviously, it's the story of, of Saul and David. Now, Israel had come through the period of time of judges, and it's time for them to have a king. And when they, when they all get together, uh, you know, uh, uh, God tells Samuel, he says, uh, uh, this is the guy that I want. Samuel goes down to Jesse, and he says, I've got all these boys, and he has them pass through one at a time. And uh, God says, I don't want him. Nope, I don't want him. Nope, don't want him. Nope, don't want him. Finally, little David comes out. Now, little David is about probably at this time 16, maybe 17 years old. He probably weighs about 110 pounds soaking wet. And when he walks through, he was the last guy that you would have thought that would have, God would have chosen to be king. And God says, that's who I want. I want him. Well, the other side of the story was King Saul. Was Saul. And the Bible says Saul was an incredible guy. Uh, he was a guy who, from all appearances, he looked like he should be the right guy. But God didn't choose Saul. God wanted David. And in that story, he gives us one of the greatest principles in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, that goes right along with what Paul's saying here. And in verse 7 of 1 Samuel 16, here's what he says. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. Now here it comes, and this is the principle. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, there it is, but God looketh on the heart. And that's the last couple of weeks I've been giving you everything that goes right along with that. And we're building this as we go. I showed you about attitude and action. I showed you how that a person will say, oh, I got saved or I'm doing this or I've changed my life. And then three weeks later, they'll go right back. Why? Because attitude didn't change. Action changed. You'd be smarter than that. You look at that. You don't buy that right out of the chute. You give it some time to see what it's really like because you never go with appearance. I told you the great concept, <coughs> short-term and long-term. Saul looked great in the short-term. Many things you face in life or many people you meet or many circumstances you look at, it looks great in the short-term. It's the long-term you got to look at. See, short-term will always be the appearance. Long-term will be how it really is. And then I talked about the lowest common denominator, breaking a situation down to you see what it really is. Not as it appears, but as the reality of it as it is. Looking at the appearance of something and buying it will be a disaster because it's short term. It's action. It's all you're getting. The, the heart of man is what you look at and what you look for. You say, well, I can't read anybody's heart. Oh, yeah, you can. You can't get in and look at their heart and see what they're like. But the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you watch the action, the action will tell you where their attitude of heart is. That's just the way it works. That's the way it works in dealing with people. Now, please don't take this wrong, because I know many of you have come over and talked to me, and you told me where you're at and the things you want to do in your life. And, and, and listen to me now. I, I, I've learned over the years, I give you the benefit of the doubt. But am I going to sign you up to be uh, the Christian of the year at that point? No. Because I want to watch you. I've been around long enough to know that people tell me everything. Oh, I could, I could fill up the rest of this sermon in the next five weeks with a layers of things I've heard people tell me that they never came through on. 
That's just the way human nature is. And after a while, you learn that it's not that you don't believe what they say. I want to believe what they say, but I, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical because I want to see it. I don't want to get my emotions involved. I don't want to get caught up in it where somebody tells me something, but it's an action change and not really an attitude change. And I've heard people all the time, you know, I want to change my life. I'll do whatever you say to do. And then two months later, they're gone. Or they got an attitude problem. Or they don't like now what they once said that they did. I've learned it's very important. And you learn this when you work with people. When somebody comes over and sits down and they have some issues you're working through, I think it's very important to document that first meeting. Let them understand what you expect. Let them tell you what they want. Document what the process is going to be. Don't get into a situation where three months later or four months later somebody comes back and says, you didn't say that or that's not what we agreed on. No, no, don't find yourself in that scenario because people will change because most of the people want to change their action and not their attitude. Most people want to go with the appearance of something. Don't fall for that. Document what you're talking about. So three months later, four months later, when it all falls apart and they don't like it, you just simply go back to that first meeting and say, what part of that didn't you understand? You see, you got to bring it back to the reality of it because that's just what it is. People always go by the appearance. I've seen girls, and guys too for that matter, get into a terrible self mess in marriage, a terrible situation, just by looking on the outward and buying the line that is put out and not using the principles of God to figure it all out. And, you know, it's just the way that it works in life. You never go with the appearance. That will always be the short term. You always follow the Bible principles in all that you do. I, I told some people a couple of weeks ago, if you want to work with people, and you want to use the principles, and you want to, you know, I know a lot of you play video games, and a lot of you do goofy stuff. If you want the a Bible alternative to that to help you grow, there's a program on TV called uh, The Last 24. And it's, uh, it's on the uh, current channel. I, I taped nine of them yesterday. And uh, The Last 24 is an hour of taking a famous person who died. Many of them by suicide, like Janis Joplin. Many of them like being murdered, like uh, Marvin Gaye. Uh, uh, many of them that, uh, different things. And, and you sit there for an hour, and it actually builds the case to show you what happened, and then goes back and show you how it is the greatest counseling tool you'll ever find. I sit there with a notebook. I sit there cataloging principles. I can't wait for it to come on because now you're actually looking at something in a person's life and you actually have the ability to take the Bible and weave yourself through it and learn and put the principles to it and you already know what the end result is going to be. One of the greatest that I ever saw, and I used it this morning, uh, for where we're talking about uh, making bad decisions, was the death of JFK Jr. Now, JFK Jr. Was a, was a unique kid. He was the little boy that when JFK, the president, was killed, was there saluting little John John, you know, and everybody fell in love with him. Well, he grew up to be a, a dynamic guy, and he was a very good-looking guy and a very uh, charismatic guy, and he was, a, he was just a really uh, neat guy. But he got killed. He got killed in a plane crash. And on 24, when they were showing this, I just about, I, I, I couldn't, I'm glad I taped it because my draw dropped so much and I, I thought there's so much here that is relevant to where we're at. And when they laid out the story, which they always do, and this is where you find the, the principles, here's what happened. He was a pilot, flew his own little plane. 
And in flying planes, you, you get two kinds of readings. The first kind of readings you get is what they call VFR. That means you have a visual, uh, you know, visual flight rules. That means when you take your little plane off, the sun's got to be out, can't be a lot of big sky, uh, clouds in the sky, you've got to stay below the cloud level because you've got to always have perfect vision of where you're at. So you've got to have vision of where you're flying. You can't lose sight of the horizon. You can't get up where you lose sight of anything. You've got to, it's a very basic fundamental where pilots get to in their life uh, when they start flying that they only fly on good days. The other one they find, it, when they get a little bit farther on, they get what they call IFR rated. That's instrument flight rules. That means that they can get into the soup of clouds and not see anything at all and be able to fly without crashing your plane. Because here's the problem, and here's where it gets interesting. Here's the problem. When you lose sight of visual and you get into a cloud, you lose your perspective of everything. You can't tell if you're up. You can't tell if you're down. You can be in a steep dive going down, and your instincts tell you you're flying straight. And you can be, you can be in a spin, and your instincts are saying, you know, I'm not going down, I'm going up. You lose all perspective of up and down, left and right. The human body is designed, whether you know it or not, the human body is designed to be relevant to, to everything that we see. This is one of the problems they're going to have with space travel when they get out there, if they ever do, and they can't see planet Earth anymore. You get out and under space, there's no up, there's no down, there's no left, there's no right. You lose all sense of direction. And for human beings, the way God made us, that doesn't work well for us. So what they did in airplanes, and real pilots follow this, I mean, if you're going to take a short hop to, you know, to Columbia and it's a nice sunny day, you've got no problem. But if you're going to fly through some heavy stuff, you've got to be instrument rated to be able to do that. What does that mean? It means that you get in completely socked out, and you don't, and your senses, your, your, your emotions tell you that your plane is in a dive, or you're going down, or you're going up, or you're going left and you're going right. Your instincts are thrown off. You don't follow your instincts. You look at your instrument panel, and you'll have a little horizontal plane in there that'll tell you you're left or right or you're up or you're down. That's what you look at. But it's the hardest thing in the world, the hardest thing in the world that, that puts your instincts aside, to put your feelings aside and trust those instruments. Hey, I do it with a GPS. I'm not sure why I bought a GPS, because I put it in, it tells to take me, and I think I know a better way to get there. I don't like the lady's voice anyhow. <laughs> Sound like my mother. As human beings, we have instincts. And when you get into flying blind, those instincts get disorientated. And you think you're going up when you're going down. You think you're going left when you're going right. You think you're straight and you're in a straight dive down. You lose your horizon. You lose all perspective of where you're at. And you've got to learn to follow your instruments. That's what he didn't do. He was an instrument rated. In fact, when I looked at that, I thought to myself, boy, there's the things exactly I tell people in dealing with people that he violated. The first thing, he took off. He took off late in the day. It was almost dark. He could have taken a direct route where he would have stayed over the coast and he had a land thing, but he didn't do it. He decided because he was running late, he was going to fly out over the Atlantic Ocean and go up the ocean. And by doing that, he, he, he cut 20 minutes off his flight. In other words, this guy lost his life for 20 minutes. I've seen a lot of God's people lose their life spiritually for a lot less than that. 
So he takes off and he flies. He gets out over the Atlantic Ocean and he gets into a, fa a, a, a fog bank and he can't see anything. He gets disorientated. And what the FFA says happened is, is that he thinks he's going flying level when he's going down and he crashes into the ocean and he dies. I looked at that and I thought to myself, he violated every principle that we use in our life. First of all, he didn't recognize his limitations. I tell you all the time, you got to know your limitations. He didn't recognize, he was not rated to fly instruments. He, he, he didn't understand his limitations. And the second thing he did, he lost control of his circumstances. Because he was late, because he was in a hurry, he took a more dangerous route than he should have taken. He lost control of it. The situation dictated what he did. He didn't dictate what he should do in the situation. And then he had two sets of rules. If some other young pilot would have come up and said, I'm going to do this, he'd have said, no, don't do that. But he himself thought he could do it. And those are the things that get us in trouble. And boy, I looked at that and I thought to myself, man, man, that's exactly what we do. Listen, when you get something in your life that you can't see and you don't know which way to go for sure and it's cloudy and it's dark and you don't have a clear direction, when your emotions and your feelings tell you to do one thing, you better forget it, brother, and you better fly by the instrument that God gave you. Amen. You better stay with the principles. When your emotions say, do this, and the book says, do this, do what the book says. And I'm going to tell you, it's just as hard in the Bible as it was flying a plane. Because our instinct says, oh, no, 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 I can do that. The Bible says, don't do that. And we fight that battle all the time. That's the battle of the mind. Every Christian needs to be IRF rated. You need to, you need, or IFR rated. You need to understand how to fly blind. In the Bible, we call that walking by faith and not by sight. We call it understanding when it's dark around and you can't see where you're going or what's going on. Follow the principles that God gave you. And that's exactly what got him killed. He didn't follow his, he didn't follow, uh, his instruments. He followed his mind. And it's the same with us. When you don't know for sure what to do, follow the principles. Not your mindset, not your instincts. When your basic mind tells you something is okay and the Bible tells you it's not okay, follow what the Bible says or you'll crash and burn. I see it happen all the time. All the time. You know, you have a supernatural compass in this book. You have a directional finder, an onboard radar that will always get you home safely if you follow your instruments. And most of the time, Christians are flying through life completely blind. That's why you make bad choices. That's why you don't, things don't work out for you in your life. That's why you get an attitude of God in time in the church and people in the church. You're someone who's been flying blind all of your life. You've made so many bad choices, and yet here you are today sitting under the preaching of the Word of God and have been for quite a while, and you know what? The hardest thing that you and I have to do in our life is to put our intellect and minds over here and take the instrument that God gave us and follow the flight plan. It's just that simple. We struggle with that every day of our life, and that's exactly how he got killed. I'm telling you, that stuff is some great stuff. Never make decisions or get into a situation or a relationship based on the appearance of somebody. The moment you step over that edge and get your emotions involved more than the principle, you're in trouble. You're going to have some problems. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. 
I tell young women all the time and young girls all the time in finding a spouse. And I tell guys too, but especially the young ladies. You know, we get the idea that, and how many times I've heard it, well, I tried the bar scene and didn't find a mate, so I'm going to go try to find one in church. Let me tell you something. In most cases, there's no difference between the bar scene and the church scene. If you think there isn't people in here today, male and female, that aren't on a safari to find a mate, you're wrong. All you need is a bush coat and a big hat with a leopard skin around the top of it. You're on the hunt. It's true everywhere you go. In your case, you're on safari. And I'm afraid you say you're going to go safari, you're probably never going to get back. But that's your deal, not mine. Y'all, you'll use that tomorrow. You'll, you'll, you will. You'll be telling everybody at work tomorrow. I was on safari. Well, where'd you go? I was safari. I never got, oh, you'll use it all day tomorrow. <laughs> we got the idea. And guy, ladies, can I tell you something? Now, I'm a guy, so I'm going to speak against guys because I'm a guy. But I'm, I'm a guy who's got a little wisdom. Not a lot, but a little bit. Never believe what they say. I'm going to give you three rules on finding a spouse. I'm going to give you some instrument rating this morning. Because most women fly blind, especially blonde women. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. I, you got to throw the traditional blonde joke in. It's okay. It's a, it, I mean nothing by it. I think you're lovely. <laughs> Rule number one. Or I, I say three tests you give them. You give them a test, three tests. You never find a spouse in church. Never do. I know that's hard to believe because church is supposed to be a good thing. Let me lowest common denominator, okay? You never find a spouse in church. You find a spouse in Christ. See? Ministry. And, and don't fall for this. How many times have I heard it over the years? The guy will say, well, I'm not in ministry right now, but once we get married, I'm really going to get in a minute. Let me tell you something. Rule. If they don't do it before, they're not going to do it after. I guarantee you. Now, I've had some exceptions to it over the years, but not many. These are rules you follow. You don't go by appearance. You fly by instruments. You fly, don't fly blind. The second thing of this, when you, you second test you find, is never marry the man. You never marry the man. And I can traverse that around, never marry the woman. You don't marry the man, nor do you marry the woman. Who you're marrying is the Christ in the man. That's who you're marrying. See, outward appearance, inward appearance. Don't marry the man. Marry the Christ in the man. You say, I don't see the Christ in the man. Hello? What are you laughing about? <laughs> You're going to have a talk a little later. <laughs> Third test. No. You don't find him in church. You find him in Christ. You don't marry the man. You marry Christ in the man. And then here's the third thing. Now, he's, he looks good so far. Short term, he's looking good. Let's see long term. He's, he's in Christ. He's in ministry. I'm going to marry, if I marry, I'm going to marry to Christ in him, and I definitely see that. Now, the third test is this. Will he minister to me? Okay. What good is it if you have a husband who ministers to everybody else, but he won't minister to you? That's his primary job. See how easy that is? That's flying by instruments. I, I collect World War II stuff. Most of you know that. 
I've always been a history buff, history, I just love history, military history, you know, my military background, I just love it all. I, I love military history. And I, and I love World War II. World War II, as far as I was concerned, was the greatest generation, was the greatest war. We'll never have another war as good as that one. Everything after that will be a sideshow. That was the best one. And uh, I, I love collecting World War II stuff. And I, I, love, I love famous outfits. I mean, I, guys who fought in the Battle of the Bulge, you know. I don't know if you know this or not, and probably this is more information than you care to have, but in World War II, many of the units painted the insignias on their helmets. Oh, I love that. I mean, I, finding one like that is like finding the Holy Grail or the, the blood of Jesus or Mary's false teeth or something <laughs> like that. I, I just, I mean, I'm into that stuff. <coughs> in collecting, in collecting, we have a saying. Follow the saying, you're okay. Violate the saying, you're in trouble. You know what the saying is? Buy the helmet, never buy the story. When Band of Brothers came out, which is a great, oh, I love it to death. Save it, Private Ryan, Ooh, great. But what that did in the collecting world is take everything and made it of an insane value. Everybody wanted it, which supply and demand. So what happens is all the fakers get on it. They make these things look so good. They put them in the ovens. They scratch them up. They put old paint on them. They take the smell out. They got it down to a science. And everything I ever bought came with a story. Well, my father was on the flag raising of Iwo Jima. Well, that's good. This is a, a pilot's helmet. I don't think there was any pilots raising the flag. No, my, he was with Patton. You know, he was on the left side of Patton's car. They all got a story. And so the rule is in buying stuff, look at the helmet. Buy the helmet. Don't buy the story. Look at the helmet. Real helmets look certain ways. Real helmets were made certain ways. Real helmets have a certain look about them that when you know what to look for, the fakes can't fake. And you, you, you learn that. But when people want this helmet and they want one like this, and here's one sitting on a table, and I've always wanted that. And the guy says, yeah, I got that from a vet. I, he was in Bastogne over there, you know, and he died a while back, and I bought a bunch of his stuff. That's all I got left. Oh, I want it. Don't buy the story. Buy the helmet. Never buy the story. When it comes to God's people and Christians, just like helmets, Christians do some things that unsaved people don't do. Look for that. There should be things different about a man or a woman who's truly saved. It's the same way with people. Don't buy the story. Look for the things that should be in their lives. Real Christians will have some things that you look for that you can't fake. You know what happens with young girls? They love this guy. They let their emotions get involved, and they want to marry him so bad he has to be saved. I want to marry him so bad, I believe he'll tell me that right now he don't want to get in the Bible with him, but he will once we're married. I've seen parents do it with their kids. I've seen everybody fall for that line that you believe what they tell you instead of holding them accountable, and you buy it. And when you buy it, it doesn't work out, but just like a helmet that's fake or a uniform that's fake, once you buy it, you own it. Never judge by appearance. It's as simple as that. Don't fly through life blind. God gave you an instrumentation, and I, my job is to get you rated. That's really, you say, well, that was a great sermon this morning. It wasn't a sermon. You misunderstood the whole thing. This is not a sermon. This is an instrument rating class. I want to get you prepared to fly blind and never get off track. 
I want to get you prepared that no whatever comes your way in life, how dark it gets, how bleak it gets, how cloudy it gets, that you never lose your focus. Now, going back to David and Saul, our Old Testament story that illustrates what Paul's telling his church about buying real things, not going by the appearance. Saul versus David. You see, they saw Saul's stature, but God saw David's heart. I got to tell you, short term and by the appearance, hey, Saul looked like the right guy, didn't he? 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 and 2 says he's a tall man. Tall men are always get attention or always looked to as leaders. This is the problem I've had all my life. <laughs> so I decided years ago to have four or five inches taken off my legs, and here I am today, see? I'm down with the common folk. My standard line with tall people, especially basketball players, when I used to play basketball and hang out with them, and people, they'd be towering over me, and people would look at me and look at them, and I'd say, I used to be tall before I got sick, you know? I mean, but tall people, they command a presence. I mean, they do. And the Bible says that he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a tall guy. He was very good looking. Now, you take being tall and very good looking, that's a good combination. And then add to it, he was very charismatic. He, could, he was very liked by people. He, was very, he spoke very well. He's a great speaker. In fact, the Bible says that he was a choice young man, but outwardly. Now, David, on the other hand, was a runt. He's a run of the litter. When all those seven boys come through and nobody thought David was going to be the guy. They thought that the other six boys would be great, but no, it was God wanted David because God saw in David, everybody else saw the outside of Saul. You can't look at circumstances or people from the outside. Use the directional finder that God gave you. Don't fly blind. By looking at him, he's the man. He's the guy we've been looking for. And here's a great example where I, I, I just like us, and this is where we got to learn. This is where we make the association. Just like us in a thousand different scenarios, we will get messed up because we don't follow the Bible and we, won't, we follow our instincts, our mind. We look at the appearance. We, we, we follow our desires. Uh, and yet we fail and we make tremendous messes and bad choices in our life. And I'm sure they just like us. Oh, I've heard it all my life. I've seen people make some of the biggest, stupidest mistakes that they've ever made in their life and then stand there and look at me like I am so stupid when they try to tell me, boy, God was just all over this thing. God has a 100 million miles around this. You wanted this. You concocted this. You got this going. The Bible tells you to do something else, but no, no, no. You want what you want, and just like Israel, Thank you, God, for what you gave us in Saul. God says, I gave you nothing. Oh, no, that's not right. Let me show you what I'm going to give you. Now, watch this thing develop. Now, here's what you look at. The people wanted Saul on the throne. God wanted David on the throne. Let's make the spiritual application. You ought to have David on your throne of your heart today and the type of Christ but some of you want Saul. Let me show you what Saul's like. Let me show you how this thing is incredibly, it works wonderful. The first thing we see was Israel's attitude of heart. It was wrong. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19, they say, give us a king like all the other nations. Samuel says, 
You're not supposed to be like the other nation. Remember, abomination? Remember, indignation? Remember all of those words that you imagination? You're not to be like the other nations. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it at all. They wanted what they wanted. Give us a king like all the other nations. Bad associations. The second thing, God sent them a preacher, Samuel, a prophet. He told them straight up, so there's no misunderstanding. This is not who God wants you to have. You know what they said? We don't care what God said. We want to be like all the other nations. There's your fundamental problem. You don't care what God said. You want to be like the world. And fundamentally, there's your problem. I don't know what to tell you. Boy, how many times have I seen this? And, and here's where you get the great principle that I tell you about not getting your emotions involved and a good conscience toward God. Samuel falls for it. Samuel's moping around. He, after they've rejected him, he's walking around, moping around, and God comes down and says, what's the matter with you, Samuel? And he says, oh, these people, Lord, they, they, they don't listen to me. He says, he says, what are you down and done for? Well, I gave them the message, and they didn't like me, and they, they didn't like the message, and they don't want anything to do with me, and I did, they rejected me. God says, what is your problem? They didn't reject you. They rejected me. Now, let's go get them. So you know what Samuel does? Samuel goes back and he says, okay, boys. He lays out the consequences of taking the wrong king. He lays out the consequences of making bad choices, just like I do every Sunday morning. In chapter 8, verse 11, he tells the people what kind of king Saul's going to be. He's going to be a dictator. He's going to take your children. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your property. He's going to treat you like dirt. He's going to be the worst king you ever had. And how many times have I said the same thing about somebody on the brink of making a bad decision? And yet they follow the same thing. We don't care. And still, they won't listen to God or God's man. They're going to follow their heart, their instinct, instead of the book that God gave them. And they're not going to listen to the man of God God sent them. You see... When you get the attitude of heart that you're going to do it your way, we saw this last week in Ezekiel chapter 8, if you remember. This is when God, after a period of time, and you're so, you're so focused on doing what you want, the Bible says in Ezekiel 8, he gives you a lying spirit. Hey, at the, end of, at the end of Saul's life, he got nothing from God. And when you make a life of bad choices, you know what? By the end of your life, you're not going to get anything from God anymore. You know what he had to do? You know what his desperate act was when he wanted to get something from God? He went to a witch at Endor. How'd that work out for him? Now, I'm not the brightest guy in the world. But I see a red flag in all of this. I mean, if you're paying attention to the Bible halfway, and you just know a little bit about the Bible, a little bit, and all the people want Saul, and you know anything about your Bible, the first thing that would be a red flag for me, and the first thing I see, and the first thing I hope if I was back there, I'd raise my hand and say, was that this guy was from the wrong tribe. He's from Benjamin. The principle in Genesis chapter 49 said that the king that God gave them would be from Judah. David's from Judah. Saul's from Benjamin. That didn't seem to bother anybody. It didn't seem to bother them that God said, when you get a king, it's going to be from Judah. They wanted one from Benjamin. Just like it doesn't bother God's people today when God says this, but they want to do this. 
Oh, I'm sure you parents see it all the time. When you take control of your life and you remove God off the throne and you don't care what the Word of God says, it's all about what you want, all about you and how you're going to accomplish it, and you still want to make everybody think you're right with God. That's appearance. You never look at the appearance of something. Always look at the biblical principles involved and see if they're being followed. Don't fly visually. Fly on your instruments. Israel wanted a king, but they didn't want God as their king they wanted Saul, but they still wanted to give the appearance of being spiritual. So they refused to put God on the throne of Israel, a picture of your life and my life. And they proceed then to violate everything that God had told them, and the man of God had told them that God sent them. And so in spite of that, they set up Saul, and by doing so, you know what they did? Going back to last week, Saul became the stronghold in their life. Saul became the guy who dictated to them some of the most terrible things that you ever saw. We'll look at it here in a minute. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and 9 deals with me or you putting your, uh, your will or Saul over God's will in your life, setting up a stronghold and then with disastrous consequences. Saul, from the outward appearance, looked like he was the right man, but inwardly, he was a coward. He was a weak person who thought only what he wanted. Hey, when it really comes down to shove in 1 Samuel chapter 17, when somebody got to go out and fight Goliath, when Goliath is walking up and down in a valley, disdaining God and making fun of God and the people of God and the nation of Israel, and he commands somebody to come out and fight him, Saul was the biggest guy in the kingdom. Saul should have went out to fight him. Saul didn't. He was cowering behind the throne someplace. You know who went out to fight him? David went out to fight him. Great principle. Not the size of the dog in the fight. Size of the fight and the dog. And David went out. Saul should have, but he didn't. You know, when you break this man down, who we put as king in our lives, who we make king in our lives over God being king, you see some interesting things. First of all, 1 Samuel chapter 13 says that he took all the swords away from the people. Now, we know from Hebrews chapter 4, swords are a type of the word of God, sharp two-edged sword. And that's the first thing when you put Saul on the throne of your life that's going to happen. You're going to lose your Bible. He's going to take the Bible from you. In fact, if you study the story back there, he had all the people turn in their swords. And then they had nothing to fight with. And then when the Philistines finally come down and attack them, they took them just like that. You know why? Because they didn't have anything to fight with. When you put Saul on the throne of your life, the first thing he's going to do is take you out of the Word of God. And you're going to be defenseless when the Philistines, the world, comes after you. The second thing you find is in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 14. God took his spirit from him. That's a picture of you and I losing the power of God in our life. Oh, I know you're always saved and you're always once saved. You're always saved. I understand that. But there's a difference between the infilling Holy Spirit of God and the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And uh, when you get saved, you get you get and dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, but to do the work of God, you get filled on a daily basis. And when you put Saul in your life, that goes. That goes. you got no power in your life at all. The next thing, Samuel chapter 28, verse 15. God sent an evil spirit to him. Hey, when you jump the Word of God and you make up your mind you're going to do the only thing and you lose the power of God and you lose the Word of God, you know the next thing you get? You get a lying spirit from the Lord. 
Oh, if you think that doesn't happen, you think, well, I don't understand how God could be a lying, give a lying spirit. I don't understand that. You've been spending too much time on the soap operas, baby. You need to get in the Bible. <laughs> Happens all the time. The next thing is 2 Samuel 7, 15. God took his mercy from him. Now, there goes your insurance policy. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago? God wants to give you a, a, an in-depth insurance policy. If you do what's right with him, he'll do what's right with you. He'll providentially provide for your family, protect your family. He'll be there for you every step of the way. You lose that when you put Saul on the throne. The next thing is in 1 Samuel 31, 4. Saul, as Samson last week, winds up a spiritual suicide. And some of God's people, as sure as I'm standing here, you may live to be 90 years old, but you committed spiritual suicide a long time ago, or you're on the process of committing spiritual suicide, or you will commit spiritual suicide simply because of the fact you refused to put God on the throne of your life, and you want Saul. And the last thing he says there in 1 Chronicles 10, 13 is God writes his testimony, and God simply says, God killed him. Well, that brings us back over there to uh, sec, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, where he says, For this cause, many are weak, some, some are sickly, and many sleep. He was a complete washout, and yet he's what everybody wanted as king. And when you see what happened to them, when they put him on the throne as king, you know where it led them? It began the process in their life that ended with their Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity. And when you put the Saul on your life and throne instead of David, you're going to wind up in a Babylonian captivity, a stronghold, a stronghold. That Bible says don't go by appearance. John chapter 7, verse 24 says, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. That's the word of God. How many times have I seen it in, in, in couples that got married? Your marriage, uh, how many times I've heard it? I should have waited for David, but I got Saul instead. You wouldn't listen. How many times have I seen it? Uh, in, the, in the life, the blessings of God, the power of God, the completeness, the happiness you could have if you just build a life God's way. But oh no, 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 no. David on the throne, no way. You've got to put Saul up there. How many times have I seen it? God gave you a book, absolute principles of God, the wisdom of God, the mind of God, no need to make the terrible, tragic mistakes of life and the bad decisions people do. He gave you a compass, a direction find, an onboard radar that shows you everything that you need to know and always points you true north. But oh no. No, no, no. We forsake the principles. We cast them aside. We fought our own human instinct, uh, like Israel and Saul, like JFK Jr. when his plane. We refuse to follow the principles and wind up in a mess. In every case, the lowest common denominator will be you do it God's way or you do it your way. End of the day. You buy it, now you own it. David told the, uh, uh, Paul told the Corinthian church, don't look on the outward appearance. Rethink that, he says, if you're saved. And I tell you today, rethink where you're at today. Rethink what situations you're in. Rethink what relationships you're in. Bring them back in line with the principles. This whole story in 1 Samuel was an example, an example of us for our admonition to clearly illustrate the principles that Paul's telling the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7. And in Israel's refusing to follow the career principles and setting up a king, Saul, we find a great model for us in our own Christian lives. It's just simply four things. First one is the holiness of Israel. God called them to be a holy people. God called you to be a holy people. He set standards for holiness. There's no room in our life 
for the things that are not pleasing to God. And when they come into our life, we ought to have a revenge against those things because we've let God down. Second thing. God's warning to them to stay with the book that God gave them. From Moses to the last prophet, Malachi, you're going to find he warns the nation of Israel continually about staying in the book, but they get out every time. The third thing, the hardened heart toward the principles of God, the man of God that God sent them. Everything, all because their association with the other nations that led to abominations, that led to uh, consternation, led to all of the things that they had to struggle with. They build their stronghold and then foolishly try to defend it. And there's no way you can. The fourth thing was the disastrous consequences in their steadfastness against God and his word was the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivity. 400 years that historians call the 400 silent years where God spoke to know them. And you get away from God and put Saul on the throne of your life, you may not live for 400 years, but you'll go 20, 30, 40, 50. You'll have your own silent years program, brother, where you won't get anything from God. May I again give you the great verse I gave you in Job over and over again. Fits right in the story today in our lives, Job 9, 4. He is wise in heart, mighty in strength, who hath hardened himself against him and prospered. And the answer is nobody. Not you, not your mama, not your grandmother. Nobody does. All because they wanted what they wanted and refused to follow the principles that God gave them. And when Paul talked to the church at Corinth, he says, look, if you're a Christian and you're looking on the things of appearance, he says, rethink that. Because it's setting up the principle that I gave you today that you never judge things by the appearance. Just like that JFK example, flying blind, thinking he was going to get to Martha's Vineyard, flying through the clouds and can't see a thing. He thinks he's going straight, but he's going down, and it led to his death, all because he would not follow the instruments that told him, and he followed his instinct. Doesn't get any easier than that, nor does it get any simpler than that. Saul on the throne of your life, or David, a man after God's own heart on the throne of your life. You do it your way instead of God's way, and at the end of the day, as I said a little earlier, whatever happens in your life, you own it. Doesn't mean that God won't help you get out of it. Doesn't mean you can't get victory over it in time. But I'm telling you this, I go end where I started. You cannot, you cannot continue to make bad choices in your life. If you continue to make bad choices in your life, then you're going to perpetuate a situation that's already in play and it's an unending thing. There has to be a break in the cycle. There has to be a break in the cycle where you can look back. It's like, it's like having credit card debt. And every month you pay for it, and you pay for it, and you pay for it. And you were foolish, and you know you were foolish. And every time, you ha it's, it's, it's way out of control. And, you, and you, you, you pay for it, and you pay for it, and you pay for it. How do you get out of debt in that kind of situation? The first thing you do is make the choice not to use your credit card anymore. That's your first choice. Cut it up, swallow it, eat it, feed it to the dog. Do whatever you got to do to it. Burn it. When you make that choice and you stop making bad choices, then you still got to pay for it. But you know what? It comes to a point. Pay it this month. Pay it that month. I got another year. I got another six months. I got another three months. And finally, you're out of it. It works the same way in our life. You got to stop making bad choices. And then you may have to pay some things on some things that you're doing along the line, but you'll get out of it. We'll put a plan together. I'll help you. 
The good thing about it is you don't have to go through it by yourself. How many of you have we walked through problems together hand in hand? We worked through everything in life. You never had to make one decision to get through it. We walked every inch of the way with you. That's the plan. That's the plan. But you got to have that plan. And Paul says, if you're judging by appearance, you need to rethink that. Because you don't judge by appearance. You judge by a righteous judgment, the Word of God. Well, we're going to hold up there today, and next week we'll get on into 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 10 again. I 